Good morning. Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Kings chapter 22. 1 Kings chapter 22. Do you know where we're going to go when we finish 1 Kings chapter 22? 2 Kings chapter 1. Jeremiah, we might. We might. Nelda needs a review of Jeremiah. We'll go right back and do it. And if you would, remember to silence your phones. And we'll have a good interrupted time of Bible study tonight, or this morning. 1 Kings chapter 22. Brother Luke, would you mind locking that up? Is there anybody behind you? Okay, thank you, brother. 1 At the beginning of last week's study, we read two scriptures that told us not to keep company with idolaters. And it also mentioned, those scriptures mentioned other types of sinners. But because we were focusing on idolatry, the great sin that Ahab had committed, we didn't talk so much about the other sins. But we looked at some words in the New Testament, in those scriptures, that talked about not keeping company. Keep company were the two words that were in view. And we learned that that meant to mingle or to mix with. And after our study, Brother Wade had a question for me, and I hope he's able to come in so he can hear my answer to it, because I did a little bit of studying to uh, be able to give him a good Bible answer rather than just my opinion about it off the top of my head. But the question he had for me was, did Jesus keep company with sinners? And that's a great question. Maybe that's one you had in your mind, and it's okay to have questions. I, I like that when somebody who's in a Sunday school class comes up at some point after the, the message and says, Hey, I have a question about something I don't understand. That's like throwing red meat to a dog. And I'm going to go study that for you if I don't know the answer right there. And it just means you're interested in what you're taught. And you want to make sure you understand the teaching rightly. So you all keep that up. Some people are, are shy about asking a question publicly, and that's okay, as long as you ask it at some point. Now, Brother Wade's been to seminary. He's a gifted Bible teacher, as you've witnessed in uh, in here before. And he knows a lot more than most people about the languages of the Bible. And so if he can ask a question, so can I. And so can you. And I encourage you to do so. Well, let's look at the answer to that question. Did Jesus keep company with sinners? And this was, again, in the early part of our study last week, but I don't want it to go unanswered. I'm going to read you a couple of passages. Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? In other words, they may have as well as asked him, Why do you keep company with sinners? Why does your master keep company with sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. 
But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And then a second passage is in Math is in First Timothy chapter two and verse fifteen. That's First Timothy two verse fifteen. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. So the answer to, there he is, or there's the indicator that he is not far behind. The answer to his question is absolutely yes, Jesus kept company with sinners. However, while he kept company with them, he did not become like them. He didn't partake of their sin. While he kept company with them, it was to call them to repentance, not to do as they did. Now, the Pharisees considered themselves righteous, but we know they were self-righteous. They came to condemn sinners with the law. Jesus was the righteousness of God, and he came to save sinners from the curse of the law. Sinners, that'd be all of us, are easily tempted to sin. So we must not mingle with sinners in their sin. Otherwise, we'll be tempted to do as they do. But Jesus could keep company with sinners because he cannot be tempted with sin. James 1.13 makes that very clear. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. And because Jesus is God, Jesus cannot be tempted to be anyone less than God. He can't be tempted with evil. And finally, speaking of Jesus Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, the apostle Paul wrote, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus, in keeping company with sinners, yet knew no sin. That's what the scripture tells us. He knew no sin. That doesn't mean he didn't know there was sin about him. Oh, he knew all about that. But he didn't become acquainted with it as it being a part of him. He was not a sinner. And... Therefore, none could say that he could be tempted with sin except Jesus, or could not be tempted with sin except Jesus, who's God in the flesh. So I hope that explanation helps you just a little bit with the answer to the question that Brother Wade asked. We did answer that question this morning, Brother. Absolutely, yes, he did. Thank God he did, because he cannot be tempted to sin, but he became sin for us who knew no sin, that is, he knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Yes, brother. Yes, sir.
That's absolutely true. And just for the benefit of those watching, let me repeat that. The In commentary on what we just talked about, Brother Fulton mentioned that a, a physician has to, the person who's sick has to have an appointment with that physician in order to be healed. But two sick people getting together aren't going to heal one another. And so that's a, that's a good commentary on that and hope that helps you even better understand. No man born of the seed of Adam is without sin and none can say he knew no sin. And so what we left off with here was Ahab calling forth his prophets to give their approval with one voice. And when Ahab asked in verse 6, now we're moving into the new part of our lesson just with a quick review. In verse 6, Ahab asked, Shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I forbear? That means, shall I not go? Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, knew none of those men were prophets of the Lord. None of those 400 were prophets of the Lord. So Jehoshaphat, in verse 7 that we studied last week, asked, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord besides that we might inquire of him? The prophet Micaiah was called forth. And Ahab said, I hate him, for he doth not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. Now let's look a little further into this passage. Look with me now at verse 9. We're in 1 Kings 22 and verse 9. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, Hasten hither Micaiah, the son of Imlah. And the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, each sat on his throne, having put on their robes in a void place in the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets prophesied before them. So while Micaiah was being summoned to the gate, the other prophets prophesied in the presence of Ahab and Jehoshaphat. I don't know how Jehoshaphat could stand to listen to it any more than I can't stand to listen to somebody just blabbering at a pulpit claiming that they're preaching God's word, Hit, hitting their Bible with their hand and opening and closing it and doing all this, everything except teaching it. But Jehoshaphat put up with it. He suffered it. Perhaps Ahab may have reasoned that if Jehoshaphat can just hear some more of the good preaching of his prophets, maybe just needs a little more volume of the preaching, that he'd take back his request to have Micaiah inquire of the Lord. But let's look at verse 11. And Zedekiah, now this is not Zedekiah the king who's mentioned in another place. This is the name of a prophet. And Zedekiah the son of Chenaniah made him horns of iron. And he said, Thus saith the Lord, With these shalt thou push the Syrians until thou hast consumed them. Now Zedekiah was a false prophet, one who did evil works in the name of the Lord, as we can tell right here. He used props to prophesy in the presence of the kings. Zedekiah was like a cheerleader, wasn't he? He was like a coach giving a pregame speech to his team. Now, I've seen props used by preachers, and sometimes they're used well, and other times they're just as silly as they can be. You take your mind off the lesson and put it on the prop. 
But what people need is the truth, whether a man uses a prop or not. And if you study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, then the chances that you're going to need a prop are probably very slim. But I'll not write that that strategy off. I have seen that help people understand, for example, a, a model of the tabernacle. You, If you're not a visual person, if you see the description of the tabernacle and how everything is laid out and you just can't picture it in your mind and somebody shows you a model of what it probably looked like, then that helps you. It helped me. So when I study the tabernacle, I think, all right, you're talking about the candlestick. As I walk in, that's right there to my left. That's how I remember that. But this man, Zedekiah, used horns of iron and said with, that you're going to push the Syrians out until you've consumed them. And as with false preachers, Zedekiah's props drew people away from the truth and to his personal forecast. Verse 12, and all the prophets prophesied so. That means they said the same thing. Whatever Zedekiah said, they said the same thing. They prophesied so, saying, go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper. For the Lord shall deliver it into the king's hand. I picture Zedekiah as maybe the president of the Sumerian Baptist Convention. Perhaps that's what he was. You know, the convention says, our wisdom is that you will push the Syrians around as though you had iron horns. And all the other prophets just echoed his prophecy. Verse 13. And the messenger that was gone to call Micaiah spake unto him, saying, Behold now, the words of the prophets declare good unto the king with one mouth. Let thy word, I pray thee, be like the word of one of them, and speak that which is, what's that last word? That which is good. How about that which is true? How about that which the Lord said? He said, speak that which is good. Now, this messenger wasn't just a messenger because if he were a messenger, then when he was sent back in verse 9 to hasten Micaiah, the son of Imlah, hither, he would have gone and said, the king said, hasten thou thither. That's hither's here and thither's there. Go over there where the king is. And that's all he would have said. But instead he came with an agenda. In fact, if he would have been a good messenger, he would have gone to Micaiah and said, the king wants you over there, and he wants you there in a hurry. And if I were you, I would inquire of the Lord. But he didn't. He had what we call a little talk with Micaiah, the kind that your parents used to have with you before you went to someone's house to eat dinner. Now, if you go in there and you embarrass me, you know what's going to happen when we get home, right? And you notice how this messenger tried to coerce Micaiah into just saying what the other prophets said. Behold, now the words of the prophets declare good unto the king with one mouth. That means, hey, they're all saying the same thing. If you want to be in this club, let thy word, I pray thee, be like the word of one of them. Well, if that was going to be the case, why would Micaiah ever bother to show up? 
What's the difference between 400 voices that agree and 401 voices who agree? There's not much of a difference mathematically. Statistically, it's not significant at all. Now, Micaiah, here's what every prophet said. This is the party line. These are your talking points. You know, Rush Limbaugh used to gather sound clips of liberal reporters. I I thought this was so funny because it happened often enough to where it was so obvious what was happening. But these liberal reporters and politicians as well would use the same catchphrases or keywords as though they'd all been given marching orders from a single source. And they would do it on the same day or within a couple of days of each other. In 2007, when George W. Bush ran for president, 16 of these reporters made public statements using the word gravitas. Anybody remember that? They each said candidate Bush did not have the gravitas or the dignity and seriousness that should accompany the office of the presidency. What are all the chan- what are the chances that all of these reporters and politicians independently thought to use the word gravitas on that day talking about that candidate slim to none and I would just say none. So they consulted someone's talking points. There was a messenger just like the one sent to Micaiah who said Everyone else is saying gravitas, so should you. So all of the reports said gravitas. None of them said, hey, wait a minute. I think he does have gravitas. Now, I may not agree with his principles, but I do think he has the dignity and the the serious demeanor befitting a president. After all, he's been the governor of Texas before, and he was a very successful business owner, agreeing or agreeing or not agreeing with his politics. And so this messenger said, speak that which is good, meaning what the king wants to hear. What was the king's chief complaint about Micaiah? He never speaks good about me. He always prophesies evil. To truly speak that which is good means to speak that which is good in God's sight. What did Jesus tell the man who called him good master? Jesus said, there's none good but one, and that's God. Do you know what we would preach if we listened to a messenger like the one who was sent to Micaiah? If we listened to that messenger, we would just preach that everyone is okay. That all religions lead to the same place. We'd get our talking points from an association or a convention or a synod or a diocese or perhaps the most, the more popular preacher, the one who wrote the most recent book that's a bestseller. We'd get our catchphrases from him or maybe we'd order our sermons online and see what other preachers are preaching this Sunday. People who believe that so-called good speaking would perish and go to the lake of fire forever. Now, that's not speaking good, is it? At least not in God's eyes, and it shouldn't be in the eyes of a Christian. If you only had one opportunity to speak to a sinner before he died, one opportunity, what would you tell him? 
Well, it's pretty obvious that if you're walking with the Lord, you'd preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to him. You tell him you're a condemned sinner, and the last breath you draw will be the first second that you're in eternity without God. And that Jesus died for your sins. You don't have to go to hell. You put your trust in him. Now, that's good news, but not for this messenger and not for Ahab. And we preach good news, by the way. We preach good news to sinners, don't we? Not by speaking what the prophets of the world say. In fact, the world calls our narrow gospel evil. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, Isaiah 5, verse 20 says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And we might rightly say, Woe unto Zedekiah and the rest of those 400 prophets, because they've called evil good and good evil. Let's see how Micaiah handles this. Look down in verse 14. And Micaiah said, As the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. We all say amen, right? We we can have fellowship with Brother Micaiah. Micaiah's already answered that. Whatever he speaks won't be spoken because all those other prophets have spoken it. It will only be what the Lord tells him to speak. Micaiah could have said, well, I'm not going to speak what those prophets say because I don't agree with it, but I'll tell you what, I don't want to anger anyone, so I'll just keep to myself. I just won't say anything. I'll just inquire at the word of the Lord and not tell anybody. What is that? That's being ashamed, isn't it? But Micaiah was bold in the Lord. He was about to go out and say what nobody else would say in front of everyone else. Reminds me a lot of Elijah in front of the prophets of Baal. Micaiah was speaking to prophets and a king. I want to give you a, a passage out of Galatians chapter 6, correct, correction, uh, Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Galatians 1, 6 through 10, probably a very familiar passage for you, where Paul wrote, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Who was Micaiah speaking to? A king and prophets who were so soon removed from him that called them into the grace of Christ. They didn't want any part of the grace of Christ. And Micaiah would not preach an accursed gospel. Just trying to agree with all the other preachers. He was not going to please men, but God. Because he was a servant of the Lord. And I think that's very clear to us. Look down in verse 15. So he, that's Micaiah, came to the king. And the king said unto him, Micaiah, shall we go against Ramoth-Gilead to battle or shall we forbear? 
Now, why do you think the king would ask him that question? He just asked 400 prophets, and they all said go. They all said the same thing. And he already said he hated Micaiah because he prophesied not good but evil concerning him. So why would he ask him? Let's continue looking at verse 15. And he answered him, go and prosper, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. Now that's a mysterious answer, isn't it, from Micaiah. I don't know whether Micaiah was having a little fun with Ahab or mocking him. Kind of like Elijah did with those prophets of Baal, didn't he? As they were cutting themselves and doing all those things, trying to rouse up their dead God. Perhaps there was a tone of sarcasm in Micaiah's voice that we can't detect as he echoed the words of the false prophet to Ahab. He was simply saying what they said. Perhaps there was a a hand gesture made toward them as if to say, well, these guys said go up, why don't you go up? Have they not already spoken? After all, Ahab wanted Micaiah to agree with the prophets not to inquire of the Lord. Verse 16, And the king said unto him, How many times shall I adjure thee that thou tell me nothing but that which is true in the name of the Lord? Now there's another mystery for me right there. It would have been enough if Ahab left off saying, Okay, we'll see there. Micaiah said, Let's go up, so let's go up. But there was certainly something about what Micaiah said that Ahab detected was sarcastic or uh, was in mockery. It wasn't what he inquired, what he had gotten from inquiring of the Lord. And this verse tells us how rebellious Ahab's heart really was. He said, tell me nothing but that which is true in the name of the Lord. And up to this point, Ahab has now admitted three things concerning the prophecies he heard that day, all of them. One, he has admitted tacitly that the 400 prophets did not inquire of the Lord and therefore prophesied a lie. He doesn't say that boldly. He doesn't say it outwardly. But by his question and his demand of Micaiah, he's admitted that. A second thing Ahab has admitted is that the prophecy Micaiah was about to give would be true in the name of the Lord, even by Ahab's own admission. And three, King Ahab admitted that what he wanted was not the true prophecy from Micaiah, but to hear that which was good in his ears. Even so, he still knew that when Micaiah agreed with the other prophets, that's not really from the Lord. That's a rebellious heart, isn't it? Verse 17, and here's what Micaiah said. And he said, I saw all Israel scattered upon the hills as sheep that have not a shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let them return every man to his house in peace. Now, who was the king of Israel but God's representative in his government over Israel? And who were the sheep but God's chosen people? And who were the prophets but those who were supposed to labor in the field, the land of Israel? The king had forsaken God. The children of Israel were scattered 
in this vision that Micaiah gives, this prophecy, and they had forsaken God. And the prophets who should have been preaching God's word were now using their own words, their own object lessons. And did you notice they used the name of the Lord? They used the name of God to proclaim something God did not ordain. A lot of evil in this world has been done in the name of the Lord. Not according to his truth, but by using his name. Certainly taking his name in vain. That's what these prophets did. It reminds me of a passage in the New Testament. I read to you from Matthew 9 a while ago. This is further on. This is verses 35 through 38. Matthew 9 verses 35 through 38. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Now what do we just read in our passage? Sheep sheep have no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest is truly as plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. And I believe Jesus was referring to the words of Micaiah. He often quoted the Old Testament, Deuteronomy most more often than the others, but I believe he was referring to the words of Micaiah, which were the words of Jesus, by the way. So Jesus was referring to his own words, wasn't he? Just those spoken by an Old Testament prophet hundreds of years before he was born of a virgin. The people in Jesus' day, the people in those days, were scattered in unbelief. That's why Jesus had compassion on them. They were as sheep having no shepherd. The gentle shepherd was not far from them, and he was not far from the children of Israel. But... They would not have him except for Micaiah, Obadiah, Elijah, the 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. But as a whole, the kingdom, their hearts were far from him. And when their king would die, if you look at the words, I saw all Israel scattered upon the hills as sheep that have not a shepherd, this also may be a prophecy about what would happen to Ahab. What did God say was going to happen to Ahab? He said, the dogs are going to lick your your blood up right here where they licked up Naboth's blood. And that has yet to occur, but we'll see it. And we know it's going to happen because God said it was going to happen. But this having not a shepherd may prophesy the defeat of the soldiers who would then scatter and, and the death of their king who is supposed to be their shepherd. And maybe that will be more clear to you in succeeding verses. And then there in verse 17, in the prophecy, Micaiah said, Micaiah said at the end, let them return every man to his house in peace. So in his vision, he saw scattered sheep. He saw them having no shepherd, no master, and said, let them return every man to his house in peace. You know those soldiers were ready to go. Ahab said, I want them to go take Ramoth Gilead. The prophet said, you bet, go up. And I'm sure they were in array and formation and ready to march, ready to ride their horses and chariots to do this. But having no shepherd meant having no peace within. And going to one's tents 
Going to their tents in peace rather than war, I believe is what's in view here. Because for the most part, these were people whose heart was not knit with their God. They were in rebellion. And so going to their house with no shepherd and not going to war doesn't mean they had spiritual peace on the inside. Peace was the opposite of war, at least in an earthly sense. Now verse 18. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell thee that he would prophesy no good concerning me but evil? Ahab's not humbled. He's not frightened by the prospect of defeat and even of his own death. This would be twice he was told, you're going to die. Once very directly in this, I believe, by way of implication in this prophecy. In fact, Ahab was actually frustrated that Micaiah continued to speak no good concerning him. And this is the attitude of the rebellious sinner when a Bible preacher confronts him with his sin. And he confronts him with the certainty of judgment and eternal damnation. And the sinner gets angry and no longer wants to listen to that preacher of righteousness. And so he acts like Ahab. See there, these, these so-called Christians, these Baptists, these evangelicals, they're always talking about people going to hell. Yes, we are. We don't want them to go. And God has given a way for them not to go. And he does not want them to perish. He said he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So this good news we go to them with is received as bad news by this rebellious sinner. And it was received as bad news by you and me until we repented. How many, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many times did you hear the gospel or read the gospel before you believed? Well, every time you heard it or read it, you understood it, and you hadn't yet believed, you did just what Ahab did. Ah, he's prophesying no good concerning me. And then one day the Holy Spirit said, that's you, and you believed. Do you remember what the high priests and the Jews of the synagogue did when Stephen preached in Acts chapter 7? And I want you to think about them and think about these 400 prophets and Ahab and probably most of the people who were with him. There in Acts chapter 7, toward the end of Stephen's message there in verse 57, it, it says this about those uh, Jews of the synagogue, the high priests, the elders, the members of the council. It said, Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. Now, we don't read that Ahab put his hands up to his ears or stuck his fingers in his ears, but he stopped his ears too. He didn't want to hear what was being preached, prophesied by Micaiah. And neither did these Jews in Stephen's day. It said they stopped their ears. And, of course, we know they ran upon him and they stoned him. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, Paul wrote, I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, 
Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. What was Micaiah preaching? He was preaching sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Who were the teachers they heaped to themselves in our text? It was those 400 prophets, wasn't it? And they, that's these rebellious sinners, they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. It's not that they will just not listen to God's word, to the truth, but they will actually listen to someone else who preaches something that's not true. It's amazing, isn't it? But that's the flesh. And in our text, rather than physically stopping his ears, Ahab, whether it was physical or not, turned away his ears. He didn't want the truth. He wanted the fables that his prophets preached. And those were the prophets he heaped to himself. He had itching ears, and so did those prophets, by the way. Verse 19. I'm going to read verses 19 through 23 all the way. And then we'll look at that. And he said, Hear thou therefore the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said on this manner, and another said on that manner. And there came forth a spirit, and stood before the Lord, and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, Wherewith? And he said, I will go forth, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, Thou shalt persuade him. And prevail also. Go forth and do so. Now this is God sending this lying spirit out to do what this lying spirit said he was going to do. Now therefore, behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophet, thy prophets, and the Lord has spoken evil concerning thee. Very uh, difficult passage to understand some parts of it. So Micaiah is speaking again, and he's actually telling Ahab about something that happened before he saw this vision of uh, the Israel being scattered and having no shepherd. And to understand why the Lord sent a spirit to be a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets, you have to understand, number one, this spirit was sent to an unbeliever. From what I can tell, God did not and has not and will not send a lying spirit to a believer. He's not going to deceive his own people. But to an unbeliever, he, when he does so, he is simply directing the course of their own evil ways to accomplish his sovereign purpose. Now, here's a, here's a good question. And from the studying, this one came to me. Is this lying spirit Satan? You may say, Brother Andy, it couldn't be Satan. Hold on just a minute. It's a good question. And although God did not send a lying spirit to Job, he sent Satan to Job. And he sent him to test him. In fact, there in Job chapter 1 and verse 12, it says, And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power, only upon himself put not forth thy hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Where did this lying spirit go? He went from the presence of the Lord. Now, here's a New Testament passage, John chapter 13, verse 26, at the Lord's Supper. 
John 13, 26. They were asking Jesus, who's going to betray you? Is it me? Is it I? Jesus answered, he it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him, that is, into Judas Iscariot. Then said Jesus unto him, and I believe he's talking to Satan right here, Satan in Judas, or Judas as inhabited by Satan. Here's what he said. That thou doest, do quickly. In other words, I know what you're going to do, but get it done right away. Go ahead and get it done. Don't delay it. So it wasn't that Jesus made Judas be evil. Judas was already evil. Satan entered into Judas, just like the scripture tells us, and Jesus, in his perfect foreknowledge, knew exactly what was going to happen. He said, go ahead and go get it done. So in that respect, he sent Satan forth to do the evil that he was already going to do. Our text, and then there is a parallel text in First Chronicles 18. In other words, it tells the same set of events as the one in 1 Kings 22 that we're looking at. Those are the only two places, as far as I was able to determine, where God sent forth what's called a lying spirit. And then there's one more text I think tends to support the probability that Satan is the lying spirit God sent forth to Ahab. And that text is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 8 through 11. And then shall that wicked, with a capital W, be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause... God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Now, who is that strong delusion? That strong delusion, based on that text, I believe is Satan with his lying wonders. These people are going to, rather than receiving the love of the truth that they might be saved, they're going to be like these prophets and like Ahab in that this lying spirit is going to do these signs and wonders before them and have this what they believe is this power, and it will be powerful. And they're going to say, oh, I believe that right there. Now that's good stuff right there. So from our text in 1 Kings, and then the passages in Job 1, John 13, and then what we just read out of 2 Thessalonians, it's apparent to me that God's directing even Satan's course in carrying out those tasks that in the end do bring God great glory. To, to save the lost and to punish the unrepentant brings glory to God. Both of them do. And, in fact, his holiness demands it. He can't ignore sin. He's holy. And all that being said, my opinion about the identity of the lying spirit here is not set in concrete, but I offer that up to you as something to consider in case you wonder, why would God send a lying spirit? Why would he do that? All right. Anybody have any questions or comments about the lesson? Yes, brother. 
That's right. For our viewers, uh, God put that lying spirit in that serpent in the Garden of Eden. And by telling Adam and Eve, don't eat of that tree, he was telling them, don't believe that serpent. Because he knew that serpent would come to them and try to deceive them, specifically deceiving Eve, who was there in the transgression. And then that with uh, the beast also, that uh, quote he gave from Revelation about that that spirit telling the pe- God's people do not take the mark of the beast. Is that is that the one you were talking about from Revelation? Okay. All right. Well, we'll stop there at the end of verse 23, pick up with verse 24 next week, Lord willing. Let's pray. Father, how thankful we are for the truths that come from your word. And, Lord, we thank you that your spirit is our teacher. And, Father, we just ask that you would help us to remember when we walk out these doors, these truths apply to us. These are not just things to study in a class and lay aside until the next week, but they help us grow in our faith, draw us closer to you. And, Lord, that's what your people desire this morning. And as we move forward into our next service, we pray you bless the singing, the praying, and the preaching of your word. Edify your people. Draw the lost unto you through the gospel of Jesus.